today I'm back behind the mic and I actually am interviewing a good friend, Ruthann Zimmerman and her husband were both raised in the old order Mennonite culture and they have deep Pennsylvania Dutch roots. After they decided to leave the Mennonite community, they realized how much they treasured a lot of parts of their cultural background, including the real food. The foods they grew up eating are still very much the foods they serve in their kitchen today. So I think you're going to really enjoy the tips and the insights that Ruth Ann shares today. And if you'd like to watch instead of listen, this full interview is over on YouTube. I'm Michelle Visser, author of Sweet Maple and creator of the blog and YouTube channel Solely Rested. Because sometimes the only rest you can find is in your soul. Welcome back to the Simple Doesn't Mean Easy podcast, where we talk about how to simplify our lives in the midst of modern day life, one step at a time. Let's do this together. So I am so excited, Ruthann, that you were willing to come on today. Thank you. Because when I reached out, I was like, I don't know if she'll want to just talk about, you know, just that, but you did. So thank you. (laughs) I actually explained. You're very welcome. I explained to Ruthann that I actually, even though I live in New England now, I grew up in Northern Delaware and my parents and I, from the time I can remember very young, would take a trip to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, at least once or twice a year. And we were probably like an hour and a half from there. And my biggest memory of that area is the Amish and the Mennonite. And my first thing I think of when I think of them is food. You know, I mean, <laughs> you think of the shoe fly pie and you think of the chicken and dumplings. I mean, there was a whole restaurant. I don't remember what it was called. Now, my mom would be like, I can't believe you don't remember the name of that restaurant. But the whole restaurant was Mennonite food. And it was this giant table, a few giant tables that everybody would sit at and they would bring out the giant bowls of all the food. And so I was just hoping you'd be willing to come on and talk with us just about this tradition of food with the Mennonite and, and just how amazing this food is and give us some tips about it all. Um, and when I met you, you know, my first thing that I remember noticing about you was your Mennonite background that you had shared about. So as soon as I heard that, I had images of chicken and dumplings running through my head. And, you know, I'm thinking about the handmade quilts that would be hanging on all the porches we'd go by and on the lines. And then blue, old blue mason jars, because my mom would go to these barn sales of the different Mennonite on the different Mennonite farms. And that would be the first thing she would make a beehive for any old Mason jars she could find. So I think of that too. But um, when I knew I was doing this season in the podcast, all about real food, I was so glad that you were game to come on the podcast. So, you know, we can chat about scrapple or apple butter or pickled eggs or whatever you want to talk about. But before we dive in, if you could just tell us some about you and your Mennonite background. Well, I grew up in um, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, on the banks of the Conestoga River. Um, I had eight siblings. Five of those siblings are sisters. So most of my memories um, surround, of course, the food. But um, most of my memories are with my band of sisters, like swimming in the river, the older I get, the less I remember of maybe our squabbles and our hard times. And the more I see my childhood as this real idyllic, um, swimming, running wild, um, kind of childhood. So then when we left the Mennonite culture, 
we left the religion in 2007. I was 27. My husband was 28 years old. We had two little girls and um, we got saved and God called us out of the Mennonites in, into a more modern church. And it took a while for me to start seeing that it wasn't um, a religion as much that we had left as it was a culture. And I started, mm. you know, having culture shock. Mm. Um, and food was one of those things that, so I had never tasted guacamole until we left the Mennonite church. I had never tasted spinach and artichoke dip. So the first couple years, I had never had um, Mexican food just because it wasn't part of our culture. Food right. is so much part of your culture that when something, when you're in such a tight knit community, you just don't branch outside of your cultural comfort foods. So the first couple of years were um, spent experiencing all this new food and the new culture. And then gradually we came back to um, more of our comfort level of seeking what we were comfortable with, like the things that were our soul food and um, the things that made us feel like we were at home because we really were lost outside of our culture. So mm -hmm. we kind of took a journey back and that's kind of where we're at now is preserving our culture that we grew up in for our children. Hmm. That's really interesting. So do you, do your kids have guacamole? Oh yeah, they love it. And <laughs> one of my daughters makes the best guacamole. Oh, uh, yum. Okay. So you're giving them the best of both. They're getting obviously all these other American-ish and other cultural foods, but they really know their heritage and that food too. Yes. Um, but when it comes to my husband, um, like you can just tell that he wasn't exposed to a different way of eating in his childhood. So he is still meat and potatoes, very, ah. very German where my children are more like, I have some children that don't really like potatoes. Mm. And I tell them that's not very German of you at all. So, not like <laughs> uh, so your husband is probably, you might say more of a picky eater, would you say? Um, yes, he doesn't like, he's not real picky. He just really knows his food. He okay. likes his food a certain way. Okay. Cause I struggle with Bill that people, when they look at him, he's this big burly guy. He's a hardworking mechanic. Like, of course he eats whatever I put in front of him. No, he's the pickiest member of our family. And it kind of yeah. drives me crazy, <laughs> but you're right. It's also that he knows what he likes and that's the way he likes it. Period. So, yeah. Um, so I feel like maybe I should explain for people who don't know that the Pennsylvania Dutch are descendants of the early German speaking immigrants that came to our country back in like the 1700s and the 1800s. And they planted themselves right there in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area for the most part. Right. And then they ventured out from there. Um, but I thought that was interesting. You mentioned that because I know people do think of it as a religion. And I really like the way you describe that, but it's, it's really a society and a culture um, even more so than the religion. But I know that a lot of the traditions of the Pennsylvania Dutch come back to food and farming. And I think that's just a wonderful tradition to fall back on. And it's like, it's the true comfort food. Do you agree? Yes, I, I agree. It's those, those foods. And even my older daughters, now that 
um, you know, they are adults and they don't eat every meal at my table. They have some foods that they're like, oh, this tastes like my childhood, you know, and mm-hmm. mom, can you make this? And um, I think that's what it is for all of us. It's just the remembrance of somebody cooking something for us and cooking it in love. Um, and I think that's where my love of baking pies comes from, because I have very, very fond memories of sitting at the table and just watching my mom make pies. And she loved to make pies. And I, and I felt that that love was, you know, yeah. somehow transferred in the food and baking pies. It's, it's just one of my favorite things because of the memories that surround it. And that's what, in my opinion, makes food a comfort food or, or makes it a cultural food. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I personally don't like making pies, I feel like I should say, um, you don't even have to necessarily love doing what you're doing in the kitchen, I feel like, as a mom you shouldn't have a negative attitude, of course, but like for, I'll give an example. In a previous episode in this season, I talked about how my dad would often mention his memory of his mom. Like the biggest thing he would come back to was his mom making bread. And I know pretty much, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't something she ever went, oh, I love making bread. You know, (laughs) it was just a daily grind for her. Every other day, my dad says she would make all the bread for the two days ahead. And even though it probably wasn't something she was singing a happy song and dancing around the kitchen while she was making it, you know, it was still connecting the family and he was sitting there watching her and he was, he talked about watching her hands knead it. And he talked about going to get her more flour when she needed it. So just that communal idea of bringing the family together. I want to take a second to pause though, from all this talk about amazing real food for us and tell you about a real food option I have added into my dog's diet that I'm in love with and he's in love with and it's just great all the way around and I'll tell you all the reasons. We started adding sea kelp to Bixby's daily meal once a day and it's been years now that we've been adding it daily and it has been amazing. First of all, Bixby loves it. It has a fresh, rich taste that dogs tend to love. By the way, I should also tell you that I know lots of people add this to their cat's daily diet as well for the very same reason. So if you're a cat person, you might want to still stay tuned in because this stuff is awesome. I do want to tell you that wherever you source your sea kelp from, you do want to make sure it's harvested from clean waters because kelp is very effective at absorbing the minerals in the ocean around it. So much so that it will definitely absorb a lot of toxic, heavy metals if you are imbibing sea kelp that has been harvested from contaminated areas. So you do wanna make sure it's clean, organic sea kelp. The one that we get from Raw Paws is harvested right off of the coast of Iceland from very clean waters. Um, I started adding it to his diet because of just how good it is for dogs. Sea kelp is a great source of fiber. It's the number one source of natural trace minerals, and those strengthen the immune system of the dog. They protect their, um, coat and give them a healthy skin, but it has, this is crazy. It has 60 vitamins and minerals and trace elements in 
the powder that we put on Bixby's food. By the way, it is zero added anything. It is literally dehydrated, um, powdered sea kelp. That's it. But it also is a primary source of iodine, which is so important for so many metabolic reasons. It gives dogs increased energy and it decreases their inflammation, which is really important for an old dog who has a bad hip and it decreases their chance of infection. So all the way around, it leads to a healthier, happier, more energetic dog. But on top of all of that, I discovered another great benefit to it. It actually helps their breath. I don't know about your pets, but my dog has some pretty bad breath and I do brush his teeth. I admit I do not do it often enough. I wish I made time to do it daily, but <laughs> the the bad breath when they're right in your face and so excited and panting on you, it can be pretty bad. But this daily amount of sea kelp that I give him, it's crazy. I don't know how it works, but it literally improves their breath and his breath doesn't smell like doggy breath anymore. Um, and you really don't need to give them much. I find that a, I think it's eight ounces. Yeah. An eight ounce bag of sea kelp that I get from raw paws lasts us for over half a year. I use less than two eight ounce bags a year. So you just sprinkle a little bit like quarter teaspoon, maybe half teaspoon on their meal once a day. It lasts forever. It's an incredible price. It's sourced organically. So go check out raw paws, use code rested one five for 15% off your entire order and go to solelyrested.com slash dog to see all of the raw paw products that both Bixby and Calpurnia, our new puppy love. There's a lot of great stuff there and all of it is 15% off with code rested one five. If you just want to go directly to raw paws, it's R a W P a W S.com. And again, use the code solely. No, not solely <laughs> use the code rested one five. But now let's jump back into this really inspirational talk that I'm having with Ruth Ann Zimmerman. So if there's somebody listening, who's like, ah, I don't do real food and I'm not really sure how to, I just want to encourage you. It's not something you have to even love. Just pick one thing and start learning. Just do a little bit. And you might be surprised how the family starts gathering in the kitchen. Do you agree? I agree. And, um, I would add that it becomes, um, when, when a child is bored enough to take an interest in what you're doing and you do it often enough, that's mm -hmm. where the memories really, really take root. So in your mother-in-law's case, she was baking bread every other day. So it became a comforting um, memory because it was so often repeated. And even though she may not have been smiling every time she did it, she, the family became to, they started to expect that she would be there. She would do the same thing. Mm, and point. a routine like that is what brings, what makes the memories, what cements them in their comfortable little cocoon is because the person that um, God put in place to take care of us, they are doing, they're, they are dependable. Yeah. You can depend that they're going to do the same thing. And as children, we're drawn to that dependability. Yeah, good point. And add to that just the sensory idea, you know, the way he would talk about watching her hands and I'm sure the smells, all the senses are involved when you're making food too. So 
there's no way to not have memories. I feel like. <laughs> yeah. And just the, the focus of a child, because, um, I, you know, I was never conscious of watching my mom's hands make the pies, but to this day I can close my eyes and picture her hands making the pies. Mm. You know, it's, it's just that mm -hmm. focus when we're in that developmental stage of learning that, you know, when something is repeated over and over, it, it becomes part of our memory. It's cemented into our mind. Yeah. That's such a good point. You're making me like so happy just thinking about it. <laughs> so. And then, and then that's where cultural food gets its roots. It's the things that, you know, are in our memories, what made us feel good, mm -hmm. what made us feel comfortable, made us feel loved and accepted. Yeah. And then you have, you have a whole culture of food. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of your family's favorite foods that come from the Mennonite tradition? Well, pies. Mm -hmm. and um scrapple mm. which um it's hard to was hard to find here in Iowa until the Mennonite community grew bigger and um they had you know their own butchers from east the east coast that knew how to make scrapple for the Mennonites Okay. Um, okay. You need to explain it. Right. Cause I know a lot of people don't know scrapple. Okay. I'll be honest. I do not like scrapple. I'll just say it, <laughs> but I could be, had never learned to prepare it. Right. So maybe you can give yes. us a clue on that too. You didn't sit around the table every morning eating scrapple with your family um, mm -hmm. before you went off to school. So mm -hmm. I don't blame you. You no, know, I think I was eating Frankenberry or whatever that cereal was called. You know, that horrible <laughs> pink. Oh yeah. <laughs> Stuff that hurts your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so at home, when we would make scrapple, we would take the bones um, that we had cut the meat off of, and we put them in a big pot and boil them down. And then um, the marrow and the, the trimmings that we didn't get off the bones, we would pick that all off the bones when they uh, when the bones were when the meat was soft. Mm -hmm. So then you grind that meat. Mm -hmm. And then there's um, salt and pepper and cornmeal and flour, wheat flour, and you mix that all together. And then you pour it into like these bread pans and it gets um, solid, you know, where you can slice it as it cools. Mm -hmm. And then for breakfast, you just fry it in the pan. Okay. And some now, people add organ meats in, you know, the organ meats that they don't like to eat, mm -hmm. um, you know, just prepared alone. They'll add that into the scrapple to grind that up. Okay. And because they're adding the flour and the seasoning, you're not going to notice the slight off taste, I guess, of these organs. <laughs> I, I think so. And um, when I started reading about where did Scrapple really originate from, it said the early German immigrants, um, you know, they didn't want to waste any part of their animals. So that's where it originated from. Mm -hmm. Now, do you just fry it in a skillet? Nothing special about preparing it? But the scrapple that we made growing up was always with venison. Um, so then we would need to add some butter or oil into the pan. Okay. But the scrapple that I feed my family usually has some pork in it. So mm -hmm. it has enough of grease that I just throw it in the cast iron skillet and fry it until it's toasty on each side. Okay. And then we usually serve it with eggs. Um, some of the kids put maple syrup on it. Yay, you know, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and some of us eat ketchup on it or pear butter. I grew up oh. eating pear butter on my scrapple. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. And do all the kids like it? Do you have any naysayers against scrapple? No, they all like scrapple. Hmm. Awesome. 
Okay. So what would you say are your favorite dishes other than, so you said pie and scrapple. Did you say something else? Um, it's hard for me to really choose what are my favorite dishes because I think mostly I cook from, um, you know, within the cultural foods. Um, so it might work better for you to ask me some of the foods that you know, because I'm not, you know, you can't really tell a cultural food if you're so immersed in the culture. You're just sure. like, well, we always eat, we do eat a lot of potatoes. Okay. Like, you know, some cultures have rice. And they, you know, oh, there was some leftover rice, then we'll add this to it. It's kind of how we are with potatoes. Okay. Um, so do you always do them the same way? Or do you have eight different ways you do your potatoes? Like, what's Oh, your... at least a dozen different ways. Okay. So maybe walk us through a few of your favorites. Do you have anything that you think might be a little unique to us who don't know? Um, do you know what home fries are? I what do, you, but we can walk okay. through those because they're delicious. Tell us about it. Yeah. So you just, um, well, right now my potatoes don't have real thick skins on yet. So I just use my shredder and shred a raw potato and throw it into the um, cast iron skillet with butter or, you know, some lard and fry them up until they're crispy and soft, you know, soft on the inside, crispy on the outside. Okay. So that would traditionally be more of a breakfast potato. Okay. Yeah. And then what do you call them? We have a little diner near us. I love it. And it has tons of breakfast foods, which I love getting breakfast food at like, you know, 6 PM. Um, but they have, I don't even know the names of them. I think they have four different varieties that you can choose for your potatoes. And I kid you not, Ruthann, every time I'm like, can you remind me the difference between this and this, you know, cause I, and I can't even tell you what, like, do you have other things? What do you call it when you shred them? when you shred the potato really small, like you're talking about more cubed or are you talking about shred? I was talking about shred. Yeah. So like, oh, okay. Rice. okay. What do you call cubed? Mm, I, I think at restaurants, they might call those skillet potatoes. Okay. I don't really have a name for the difference. It's just like, Hey, they're cubed today or, you know, okay. oh, I shredded them. Okay. But shredding probably is faster for you the way you do it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's faster. Okay. And then um, do you do French fries? Very seldom. Hmm. Why is that? Because um, it makes a mess on my stove when I have to fry them. Like I don't have a deep fryer. So then I have to use an open top skillet. Okay. And it, it spits oil everywhere. Okay. Do you, <laughs> but have I would, I would probably, I'm more likely to make um, like potato wedges. Okay. And you do that in the oven? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'll usually do potato wedges. I actually call them fries just because it's a whole lot easier to cut them as wedges and they're the same thing as fries. <laughs> so, right. Um, but I'll put mine in the air fryer. It takes 20 minutes in the air fryer and they're so crispy. So that's, that's my go-to for a lot of I've things. I've checked air fryers, but I, number one, I would need the largest one they make. And I still probably mm -hmm. would have to make two batches. You're so right. That's um, true. My, my children don't know you know, they know right. they like the way I make them in the oven. So I'll just, why buy a gadget that takes up room on your counter when you don't need it? You're right. Yes, definitely. Um, I did think of something that might be unique to the culture. Actually, mm -hmm. I, I'm pretty sure it is. So I know everybody makes their, you know, a lot of people in the homesteading community make homemade pasta, mm -hmm. but they almost always make it fresh and then cook it right away. Right. Um, in the Mennonite culture, when you get a lot of eggs and you need to use up a lot of eggs, mm -hmm. you actually spend a whole day and you make a whole bunch of pasta 
and then you dry it, you let it dry and then you store it. Okay. I, I love seeing the kitchens just loaded with the hanging noodles everywhere. <laughs> it's so fun. So and then you, you lay out clean bed sheets and you lay them on the beds, you know, and let them dry. Wow. So it's literally an all afternoon affair. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Now, do you do anything special to store them and how long will they last when they're dry? Um, we usually just put them in plastic bags and if they're dry, they don't get moldy, but I do remember my mom, you know, after a couple months, she would say, okay, let's put these in the freezer now. Okay. Um, so she would put them in the freezer, but they're real fragile. You know, they break real easy. Oh yeah. Um, so they do take special storing. Is there anything special to look for, to know they're thoroughly dried? Um, I'd have to ask my mom, but I just, I think the thinner ones are easier to know they're dry and they're real. Like when you break them, you'll just, you'll know because they'll have that real crisp break. And you can probably maybe see inside if it is a thick one and it's not quite dry when you break it, it probably looks a lighter color inside or something. Yeah, definitely. The color is different when they're dry. Okay. You've actually inspired me. I make fresh pasta relatively often, but I've never tried to dry it. And now I'm really wanting to. <laughs> so I asked my mom the other day because I was thinking I need to make some and I have not made any on my own. You know, I've always made it with my mom or one of my older sisters. And before we ran, um, ran them through our, our pasta machine, mm -hmm. we would take the iron and we would iron them. Hmm. And I asked my mom, why did we do that? And she's like, oh, to start them drying. If you iron them with a hot iron, then they're already partially dry and you put them through the pasta machine and then it really cuts down your drying time. Wow. That's right? very interesting. Now, would you use, I'm going to ask a stupid question. Would you use just your regular clothing iron? Yeah. Wow. So you like roll it out flat on your counter and you get your iron and you roll the iron over. I mean, not roll it. Okay. It so with your pasta machine, you know, you have, do you have a pasta machine? I do. I was off. Don't let me forget to ask you if you have any tips on the best pasta machines too, but go ahead. Um, so then it has like a roller where you put your dough through first and it just kind of thins it out. Right. So when, right before you put it through your, the side of the machine that cuts them into strips. Oh, you know, so you roll it through the machine, then get the iron on it. Oh. Then you iron it right before you put it through the strip part of the machine. Gotcha. Wow. Now there'd be no need for that step, obviously, if you're eating it fresh, but it's going to, no, it's going to make your exactly drying right. go faster. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I've been through two different pasta machines, not happy with either of them. I feel like the second one I got, I thought, well, I'm going to go up and spend lots more money, get the higher quality, but it was the same as the other one. Like it was kind of, it's cheesy. I'm not really happy with what did the quality. You, what did you not like about it? Like it's, it's, it feels tinny and the pieces are hard to get on and off to do the different thicknesses or attachments. And then you can't clean it. Is that how all pasta machines are? You, you can't like, you just let it dry. I've ever, I've ever only had one pasta machine and that one I thrifted. And to be honest, I'm not wow. even quite sure what the brand is. Okay. It's, so. it's heavy. You don't want to drop it on your toes. It's very uh, heavy. Interesting. And um, you don't actually have different parts to put on it. Like there's this little knob that you just put by your different sizes. Okay. And then you turn it. The only thing okay. that I don't really like about it is the handle comes out real easy. I have that trouble too. Yes. <laughs> so 
when the kids are it and it pops out. Yeah, when the yeah. kids are helping me, it pops out. So yeah, yeah. Okay, but you don't take there's no way to take it apart and clean inside. You just no throw it away. I just okay. kind of let it dry and and then you know brush it off. Okay. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I really don't know much about Mennonite dishes. Just like I said, I know shoe fly pie and I know chicken and dumplings. So I don't really know what to specifically. I don't know. Maybe you could walk us through chicken and dumplings. Um, well, when we make chicken and dumplings, it's just the homemade pasta. It's more like a chicken noodle soup in our family. Like we just use the homemade pasta, the chicken, um, you know, things like that. We add corn to it, which I know is not very common. Hmm. But I think it was a way to just, you know, stretch, stretch the dish, make it go farther. Right. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think another, or you had mentioned pickled eggs. Mm -hmm. Um, In our family, we would take our pickled red beets Mm -hmm. and then we would put our hard boiled eggs into the, into the red beet brine. And then we had red beet eggs. Okay. And they, they tasted pickled. Okay. So that, that was a way of preserving them. That was just a special dish we made. Um, okay. And I, I do believe that we canned the pickled beets mostly for that reason. I think we all liked the, you know, red beet eggs, we called them, hmm. um, more than we liked the pickled beets. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense, I guess. Okay. Walk me through what is shoe fly pie? I'm just going to ask because I'll be honest, I don't like it. I think it's an odd taste, but I know it's very popular. My parents loved it. What's in shoe fly pie? Shoe fly pie is mostly, um, so you have your, your base is molasses, like, and when I say molasses, it's like the dark caro mm-hmm. yep. and, um, some blackstrap molasses, cause that gives it that real, um, tangy molasses flavor. Okay. So you're breaking down for me right now. Why I don't like it. If it was made with maple syrup, I would probably love it. But the Which reminds me, have you tried pecan pie made with maple syrup? No, because I don't like pecan pie, but I've never tried it with maple syrup. <laughs> I bet you don't like it because of the corn syrup that gets put in most recipes. But I have a recipe. I think I saved it to my Instagram okay. and I used maple syrup instead of corn syrup. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I stopped you. What else is in the shoe flat? Okay. So then with, um, and then you mix that all together and then you have like a crumb mixture, which I think is butter and flour and sugar. And then when you bake it, the, my mom's recipe was called a wet bottom shoe fly pie. Huh. So all the molasses egg mixture goes to the bottom and the crumbs float to the top. Huh. So you have a real dry top and a moist bottom. Wow. That actually sounds pretty good when I'm listening it to is. you it. <laughs> I should make one for you. There you go. If you could just mail it to me, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever only had a shoe fly pie from somebody that, you know, makes them commercially to sell. Exactly. Yes. And just like in every culture, you know, aunt so-and-so is known for her tacos and, you know, my oldest daughter is known for her guacamole. Like the family mm-hmm. always says, oh, let Stacy make the guacamole. Not all shoe fly pies are created equal. Yeah. I, I tend to think that my mom's recipe, you would probably like that one. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure I would, maybe someday. Um, okay, so 
Do you have any recipe you could point, like share with us and I can put it in the show notes or anything? Like shoe fly pie? Sure. Would you like to share that? I, I can share a recipe for shoe fly pie. Oh, I fantastic. can get that to you. I will put that guys that are listening, you head over to the show notes, like don't walk, but run and it will be there. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Um, okay. So one thing I really want to break down in this whole podcast season is this fear that real food is just too hard. And I would not deny never that it definitely takes a lot more effort than breaking open a box, adding a little bit of butter and calling it dinner. Right. Um, but I would love, I'm sure with your large family and with your deep roots in really good comfort food, I'm sure you have some really valuable insights or tips that would help people listening who are just a little intimidated and afraid about really setting a whole table with real food and ever getting to that point that they're comfortable doing that. Could you give us some insight that makes it more doable, not quite as intimidating? Um, I would say a lot of practice. Um, to me, cooking from a box actually takes more time because I have to stop and read the instructions. Interesting. And I didn't grow up that way. Like my mom, um, she had recipes if we wanted them, but she always was in the kitchen. She hovered over us and she'd say, oh, okay, it needs a little bit of this or add a little mm -hmm. bit of that. So I want to meet your mom. <laughs> I just, love I, it. I cook from my cuff. So when I have to stop and read instructions, mm. it really, really slows me down. Mm -hmm. So I would say to people, choose a couple dishes and then do them until you don't even have to stop and think like mm -hmm. it's just second nature. Are you making, um, like poor man's steak or Salisbury steak? you know, do it until you know that a little bit of flour and water mixed together is going to make this gravy thicker, you know, and then stick your finger in and taste it. We tend to overthink our time in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, I don't use a recipe unless my Instagram followers ask me for a recipe, then I have to write down what I put in. And then it's really hard sometimes, right? Yes. So yeah, that's why I have different highlights. I have highlights for things we eat where I just freestyle it. Mm -hmm. And then I have highlights for recipes where people want to know exact amounts. But for me, like I, I freestyle my way around the kitchen. So you know, sometimes my children will say, mom, do you remember this one dish that you made? I'm like, no, I don't. They're like, it was really good. And then, you know, I have this little memory of, oh yeah, I was really short on time. And it really was just leftovers that I put together and mm -hmm. but there's no recipe for it. I don't know if I can recreate it. And that's um, really the only negative to the way you, you do food, right? That, that sometimes there's this big hit that even when you try, you can't quite repeat it. I have that problem that yeah. I'm like, guys, I'm sorry. I don't know what I did, but it's not happening. again. <laughs> right. And I, I think that's the biggest thing um, that I would tell people is just, just get in your kitchen and start experimenting. It doesn't have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And, and soups is a great way to start and you'll learn to know what goes with what and what your family, you know, likes what seasonings they like. And then make it your own, you know, maybe find a recipe that inspires you, but make it your own. It's not going to, it needs to be your own. Yeah. And then you're able to do it, freestyle it, and you don't, it doesn't take brain space. Yes, definitely. And it's so good. And you can even then share it with others. I have a few recipes like that. I only have a few. You probably have 
48, but I have a few that I can just sit down with a friend and tell them exactly how to work through it and how to make it, you know, and that it just, it's a nice thing to be able to do. And those are usually the recipes that I fall back on, on those nights that, oh, I haven't thought about dinner. Well, I'll quickly get together the really easy thing, right? (laughs) Because you need something that's in your mind, something that, so then as you start cooking from scratch, you'll add to your recipe book in your mind and you'll start rotating through those. And then every once in a while, you'll, you know, add something new or try a new recipe, but then you make it your own. And then you have this rotating recipe book. And that's when you become comfortable cooking from scratch is when you're cooking from your recipes in your head. Yeah. And it's okay if this takes, I don't know, a decade, it's okay. Like you slowly step-by-step work towards it. And the whole time you're creating the family time together, you're creating the memories, you're giving them good food, even if it's just one part of your meal, that's the real food that you made from scratch. That's okay. You're working towards, eventually you can be like Ruthanne. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, mine goes a couple generations deep because by the time I was 10 years old, it was my job to cook dinner for the family one night or two nights a week. Yeah. Um, And, you know, like I said, my mom didn't have fancy recipes to choose from. She'd say, well, what do you want to make? And if I said potato soup, She'd say, well, go peel your potatoes. Now chop your celery. You know, she didn't write it down. I had to learn to keep it in here. And then, you know, by the time I was, you know, 14, she'd be gone and she'd say, hey, make potato soup for supper. And I'd have to remember how she taught me to do it. Mm -hmm. That's great. One thing you had mentioned, I don't know, a few minutes back, but I think we also should point out is you were talking about making a recipe your own. And I think that's one thing people don't realize about real food that you can totally make it exactly how your family loves it. You know, if you're using a box prepared meal, there isn't much variety there. You really don't have choices or you're going to wind up with mush or something, you know, but when you're making it yourself, you can totally change up the spices more. You can change up the texture even. You can really play around with it till it's something that everybody at the table goes, we love this. You know, you have literally your family's favorite dish and that's hard to get in some other way. I, I agree. Um, and especially like, say it's easy for me to say with soups, like a beef stew, you can put tomato juice in it with your broth, or you can omit the tomato juice. It really doesn't matter. It's not Mm going to mess up anything. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, you can put more or less pasta in it. You know, if you want a thicker soup or you cannot even put pasta in it at all, you can put rice in it, Mm -hmm. into it. You know, Mm -hmm. so it really, there is no way to make it wrong. I mean, you might end up with an experiment where you're like, okay, that didn't work, but Mm -hmm. it's not wrong. It's just my family didn't like it, or I put too much pasta in it. It's it's not wrong. Right. But once you do try the rice instead of the pasta and everyone likes it, you have this great sense of a boost in your self-confidence in the kitchen. And you think, oh, it's okay that I tried that and it worked, you know, it's yes. such a good feeling. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, first of all, again, I want to say thank you. Cause I'm so, I know that there's just so much tradition rooted in just sitting and listening to you talk about food. And I'm so thankful that you were willing to share that and give us some insight, but do you have any last words of wisdom for people who maybe even they're struggling, even getting the family around the table, maybe even once a day for different reasons, you know, for their schedule, the craziness of everybody's schedule or their own stress in the kitchen, whatever it is. Do you have any last words of wisdom to just encourage the moms listening that you can bring the family around the table? 
Um, I think this becomes especially challenging when your children become the age where they don't seek to spend time with you anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would add, I would bring a food they love. And um, number one, you have to have a rule that there's no devices at the table. Yes. Because otherwise you may be sitting at the table, but you're still not together. Yeah. So then a food and a conversation um, and then just build on that. It may be a five minute conversation at first, but as you do it more routinely, you may have longer conversations mm -hmm. and you can even add something that they're really into. You can say, Hey, come show me, you know, this, you know, it could be something you have zero interest in. Good point. <laughs> the fact that you ask them, and then you can add their favorite food and say, Hey, I made this snack. You know, will you, will you try it and tell me what you think about it? And then just build on that until you're, you know, at a meal time. Yeah. Great point. I love that tip about it can just be a snack that you're gathering everyone around to have this delicious snack and talk about what yeah. they want to talk about. Good point. Okay. So how, where can everybody find you? Anybody who isn't already following you, let us know. I know there's Instagram. Tell us your handle. Tell us every way we can find you. Well, Instagram is Ruth Ann Zim. I think there's two M's. Okay. Not positive. Um, and I'm not much on Facebook. If I go to Facebook, it's just for Facebook Marketplace. I don't post a lot on Facebook. <laughs> I, I, do have a, I do have, um, we have a YouTube channel um, that's been sadly neglected this summer mm -hmm. because my, my son, who was the instigator, he kind of lost interest in it, wanted me to start using the GoPro. The GoPro didn't come naturally to me. So mm -hmm. then it just kind of fizzled. Yeah. Um, but I think I can pick that up and make it my own now that he's lost interest. I, <laughs> I think I'm to the point where I can make it my own. Uh -huh. And um, our YouTube is homesteading with the Zimmermans. Okay, great. And I'll put links to those in the show notes too. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. You have encouraged me. I'm going to go make some pasta, I think a whole bunch of it. <laughs> oh, I know. I've been so anxious to make pasta again. It's not something I make in the summertime just because it takes more time. Yeah. And here in Iowa, you have to, you have one chance at summer, you know, our winters are long. So we spend all of summer outside if we can, but I've been looking at my pasta machine going, Oh, I'm so anxious to make pasta again. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally relate to what you're saying about summer. It's way too short in new England. And also, you know, do you heat your home with wood heat? No. Okay. We have two fireplaces and a wood stove and the heat of that in the winter I would imagine it's the best time for drying pasta. So oh, yeah, you could put it on. Do you have like a clothes drying rack? I do. I'm picturing yeah. it on my table yes. strung out. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> how my, my mom always, we had our clothes drying rack with all this pasta draped over it. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Ruthann. This has been You're a joy. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. So I hope you enjoyed talking with Ruthann as much as I did. Afterwards, she messaged me gosh, I wish we could just actually sit down at one of our tables over a cup of tea and continue our talk. And I said, I know I feel the same way, but yet I hope that you feel like you kind of got to sit down with Ruth Ann and I today. And we kind of did just that. Don't forget if you have a dog or cat that you love, please go check out Raw Paws. Try the sea kelp if you want to improve their bad breath and give them lots of nutrients. Also go to solelyrested.com slash dog for all the raw paws treats 
and amazing. Uh, they have bully sticks that Calpurnia loves and ama- so much. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm just going to tell you, please go check it out and be sure to use the code rested, R-E-S-T-E-D, one, five, to get 15% off your entire order to make your dog and or cat super happy. Also, before we end, I want to give a shout out to today's listener. I actually was so tickled when I paused my recording and went to grab Dee Dee's uh, review over on iTunes. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I was just talking about. That, you know, I hope you feel like you sat down with Ruth Ann and I and enjoyed some conversation. Here's what Dee Dee said. Uplifting and honest. I'm so encouraged by Michelle, so helpful. I really love her sense of humor and how humble she is. I feel like I'm sitting down with a cup of tea and having a sweet visit. God bless you and thank you for bringing fun content. That's just so sweet. And then she signed it Diane Hill. Her um, name, her handle is Dee Dee. Diane, thank you so much. That just, it made me really smile when I, when I went over there and saw that five-star review. I just like, I want to give you a virtual hug. Consider yourself virtually hugged. <laughs> All right, that's it for today, guys. Please join me for our next episode. If you're not subscribed, please do that so you know when the next episode comes out. This is a really fun season. I have lots of great stuff scheduled that I hope is going to really encourage you in this whole area of It's really not as hard as you think. Don't let it intimidate you. One little step at a time. Let's put some real food on our tables. Catch you next time, guys.